John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 795.R01502, certificate number 29242. I guess a thing we're going to have to explain to the far future is that in our time, in these, the waning days of human civilization, the closest thing we have to a universal spiritual leader or moral exemplar is a... Post Malone. Is Post Malone. Mm. No, is... uh, (laughs) Well, I'm trying to think which influencer... Which influencer I would choose for this? Which which of my favorite YouTubers or TikTok stars? No, is a children's television host from the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. who's been dead for 20 years. And the other thing we'll have to explain to them is that during his lifetime, he was, and we probably have to explain this to people today, he was not a spiritual leader or moral exemplar. He was kind of not a... Not to you, maybe. No, not to anyone. He was to me no. as a child. Oh. Well, yeah, exactly right. So to children, he was this foundational figure, and I want to get into that. But in the culture, he was a punchline yeah. of a certain kind of... Milk toast. Yeah, milk toast, at worst, simpering, at best, extremely gentle kind of you know, borderline entertainment. Right. And somehow... Around the time of his passing, he uh, what he experienced some kind of miraculous assumption the way saints do. Because all of the people my age that, that at seven years old were seated around his feet, hanging on his every uh, on every like slipper crunch. We finally controlled the culture. <laughs> That's right. We and were, we were like, you know who we actually like? We briefly controlled the culture <laughs> <laughs> for 11 hours between the death of Kurt Cobain and Millennium. Do you think that's part of what it is that, uh, you know, that it was adults who didn't understand him who were making the jokes? And then once the kids who understood him grew up? Yeah, the jokes all came from Johnny Carson. Right, I mean and the, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that who didn't know the material didn't didn't. I mean, it seemed like the the same way that I think that that Gen X spent 
10 years saying like, oh, the millenniums never got, they all got straight A's and so they don't know how to fail. Um, I think the boomers looked at Gen X and, with the same kind of, oh, you, you, a little puppet and and a man in a sweater, you know, that's the, you know, no loud noises or whatever. And some of that same Benjamin Spock, anti-Dr. Spock hot take where it's like, I think you will still see an occasional Fox News Chiron that dares to take on Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Just, you know, look what a generation of of uh, unresilient, entitled mopers he produced with his, uh, what, his, his doting attention to each and every kid, as, as if... As if attention to each and every kid is some bad thing for the culture. Well, and also, uh, Mr. Rogers was progressive in a lot of, you know, he, um, I, I, I don't think he celebrated my two dads all the way to, to that, but he certainly was, you know, you remember the famous episode where he, he, uh, he washed his feet with, a with an African American friend and mm-hmm. that was like a, some incredibly transgressive moment for half the culture. Yeah, exactly. Kids didn't even notice. They were like, oh, cool. Mr. Rogers and Francois the cop are, uh, are enjoying the kiddie pool. I like yeah. the kiddie pool. But, it, you know, Mr. Rogers is thinking in the South, a lot of these kids go to segregated pools still. Right. Well, and that's the Sesame Street thing, right? I mean, growing up in Anchorage, watching Sesame Street with all of the Latino people and, you know, like the the idea of, Running through a an open fire hydrant in in Queens, right. it just seemed like with it, your cool multiracial friends. Yeah, I was, could be the little white kid there. It just looked like Mars to me from my weird, you know, perch. Even from Northeast Seattle, where I was watching it, it, it did seem like, and it seemed actually cooler. Yeah, way cooler. It was like, look at these kids running around. They have look at there's They're, playground equipment stick everywhere. Dick ball and hopscotch and yeah, they just exactly. Take over the streets and I have to like walk three blocks to my own elementary school to go on the jungle gym. Yeah, like right. a chump. <laughs> Do you think there's something else that happened where the culture changed to such a degree that we started to like crave Mister Rogers more? That's like his qualities are in shorter supply. That seems like it's kind of the the unspoken take in a lot of the modern Mister Rogers revival. I think that was the take, but I I I think part of that is that in the nineteen seventies and eighties, really, American culture still had a a real Christian framework. You you could still there were there were Christian programs. You know, at Christmas time, everyone. Um, it was not secularized yet no. a- across the whole spectrum, right? Billy Graham was on TV. Linus, Linus, you know, Coca-Cola um, in- sponsors Linus bearing witness of uh, of the divinity of Christ in primetime, and it just becomes part of Americana. Right. And and I think as as maybe the American population got less and less religious during that period, and that we've seen a, uh, that go the other direction too, but there was that... 60s, 70s, early 80s, people were it's still going. Like half, yeah. less, fewer than half of all Americans today go to church. I think, and that's that's a first. Oh, really? Yeah, that's well, that's like a, a inflection point last year. Speed the collapse. It's just the ones who do are you know trying to make up for it in um, <laughs> right in, intensity <laughs> in taking the dinosaurs away and making Pluto a subplanet. It, I, I think intensity is the nice way to say it. But uh, but I think that uh, that kind of imprimatur of religion in the culture sort of backstopped a feeling that there was morality of a con- a shared morality even though half the country didn't 
right. have have that religion, and then there was a whole other third of the country that had completely other religions. It was you know the, America was backstopped by some at some point. Jesus was hiding behind a hedge. He's got the golden rule, right. and uh, everything's going to be okay. But by '96 or whenever Mister Rogers died, there was no longer uh, any kind of commonality and religion had become completely politicized in the country and people like me gen xers who realized they couldn't worship soundgarden that wasn't soundgarden wasn't gonna it's an option help help you be a better person (laughs) i hope the black hole sun comes yeah washes away the rain there are some dark dark themes there um yeah, we realized, oh, wait, Mr. Rogers was our... The Kiss Army is not a religion. <laughs> <laughs> it was! <laughs> yeah, so, that's... So I was going to ask, who was the secular saint before... Who functioned as our secular saint before Mr. Rogers? And you're right, I think we didn't actually need one because there was kind of a general understanding that uh, you didn't need uh, a religious moral exemplars in the culture. Because they were all over the place, right? right. I, I mean... Um, and I, by the way, when I say Mr. Rogers is a religious, you know, he, he took an eight-year correspondence course and got a divinity degree. He was right. he was a ordained Presbyterian minister. He just never had a, a pulpit. But I, I mean a religious in the sense that, well, for one thing, he was dead set on not using his TV platform to proselytize. Yeah, there was no cross on the wall. And there could have been, right? Sure. He could have put a cross up. Uh, in in the in the background, and no one would have batted an eye. Like picture picture could have put up the fourteen stations of the cross just <laughs> quietly in the background. <laughs> but I also mean a religious in the sense that he's kind of universally accepted as a as a you know a pan religious figure by people of any belief or faith. Although very much of a kind of um, a kind of what would you say? Like uh, he's very Protestant. There's no, oh, yeah. there's no Old Testament to Mister Rogers, right? It's all very much about personal, your personal witness, your personal experience. There's no, Mister Rogers never, never really appeals to authority, right? He never, Mister Rogers never says like, "This is what we do because this is how it's done." No, it's always like, "How do you want to? How do you want to find your path? Like how, like what are the voices saying to you?" So in that sense, he's very much a, he's a crypto Protestant. You mentioned that kind of my two dads, Kulterkampf, and, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers, actually, there, there are some data points from his show. You, you mentioned, uh, his friend Francois, right? He's a major character in today's entry because he was an opera singer with the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, Fred had met him at church, I guess, in Pittsburgh. Uh, and that's the other thing. He's from Pittsburgh. The whole thing is <laughs> so crazy. We got to get into this. The whole <laughs> enterprise is from Pittsburgh and everything about the, for 30, 40 years, the whole cast crew aesthetic, everything is just a little public TV studio in Pittsburgh. It's so bananas because Pittsburgh, com- K- Pittsburgh, the idea of Pittsburgh and Mr. Rogers neighborhood. You don't imagine gentle steel workers and <laughs> cardigans just can't put them together. There's, it doesn't fit, but I I always think of it as New England, right? You look at you look at Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and you think, oh, sure, this is in Vermont or Maine. Uh, the way that it maybe it just portrays that it could kind be of, Midwestern to me. Am I wrong? I, mean, I guess I mean it could be like the Plain States. I know you don't like it when I say that the Prairie is the Midwest. 
Oh, I think that it could be Iowa. Yeah, that's what I'm. But that's in what the I'm in the hilly part of Iowa, not the flat part of Iowa. Okay, <laughs> I don't know that when they show that model neighborhood table, it looks pretty flat. But aren't there little hills in the background? Are there? He I never f- goes hiking. I feel like there are some hills because Pittsburgh is full of hills. They changed, by the way. They changed the outskirts of that table based on like the the central neighborhood that those two kind of streets that form a parabola. Those are always the same. But when Mister Rogers has to go for farther afield, you know later. Yeah. When they had the budget, he would go to the zoo or the factory or whatever. And that stuff would all be added each time. Oh, because, you, right, you'd follow it. I remember he went to the mall. Yeah, and, and suddenly there's a mall and it in was, the corner. And there was a mall. I, I couldn't believe that. That even happened in the house. Like, kids were concerned that Mr. Rogers never went to the bathroom. And oh. so they built a little They built a little bathroom and then... Kids were concerned. Giant air quotes. It's just, That's such a great example of, like, public television as a as a research topic, like think of all the PhDs that were all the theses that were written about it was what ki- kids think about Mr. Rogers. But it was kind bathroom. of the first podcast where people felt like they were hanging out with him because that was explicitly the aesthetic of the show. And we're forgetting Captain Kangaroo, but yes. All right. I'll well, I mean, we should get into that. Mr. Rogers was kind of a, was kind of a response to those Captain Kangaroo shows. So, and he, Oh, by the way, also at the very, towards the very end of the show, in the last year of the show, he wanted to, he wanted to, um, have a computer. So suddenly he was like, let's go to my computer room, which is over here by the bathroom. And suddenly there's just a little desk over in the corner of the set past the fish tank where he's like, uh, you know, it's, you gotta he's be, got you've got to be safe on the internet, but I'm going to go to mrrogers.com or, or, you know, it's, it's a uh, kind of the beginnings of um, surfing the web in, Interesting. In the year 1999 or 2000. I wasn't watching the show by then. So I guess I missed it. But just to get back to Francois Clemens, his opera singer friend, uh, he tells the story of, I guess, Fred coming up to him in the seventies and saying, people see you hanging out at the gay bar by campus. Oh, and that's fine by me. You know, I, 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 I'm the last person to judge. As you say, he's not a, Mr. Rogers is not an old Testament God, but it's bad news for the show. You know, Mr. Rogers is also, he was already a, a feature on the show. Yes. He's a cast member on the show. And this is, yeah, he didn't invite him on the show because, hey, we saw you at the gay bar and we thought you'd be perfect. No, and, you know, we like to think of Mr. Rogers as just not responding to anything in the culture around him. That's usually true. But in this case, he was like, if you're out of the closet, we could get letters and protests and cancellation. Sure, for sure. Um, so, because because of just the gross conflation that went on between um, the gay community and, you know, accusations of child molestation yeah. at that time. Well, but also part of the jokes at Mr. Rogers's expense uh, were about the fact that he seemed fey. He's putting on his loafers every day. And even once he does, yeah. he's a little light in them. He's, he's so, he's so soft and the culture at the time could not, could not have a masculinity that wasn't Harder than that. And even Francois Clemens, a closeted black gay man at the time, like doesn't know how to react to Fred when he first sees him. He's like, I have never seen a straight guy of any color act like this guy. And I'm a little uncomfortable with it, you know, because (laughs) it's just some weird space that does not map into the genders of of 1970 or whenever they're hanging out. My opinion of that really changed when I watched Mr. Rogers's testimony in front of Congress. See, that's the stuff that happened outside the show. Yeah. So the kid, we were not, we, the Mr. Rogers viewers were not aware of him saving PBS in front of Congress. And then, you know, he, like his arguments, I think, um, it wasn't like an amicus brief to the Supreme Court, but I think it was arguments again in, to Congress were what saved home VCR taping. 
Really? Yeah, because he was oh, like, he was like, my television friends sometimes want to watch the program after their parents get home from work, and maybe they want to watch it right before dinner or right after dinner. So like he's telling, Cong- and Congress saves uh, home VCR taping, which rights holders were not into because it's mesmerism he's using. <laughs> I mean that 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 cadence and that voice. Sure, he's a secret mind controlling alien from. Well, from Pittsburgh, apparently. But you watch him in front of Congress, and he is so firm, but so gentle. People who knew him, people who worked with him, say like, "Yeah, it's it's a mistake to convey the to associate the gentleness with like a lack of, like that's a guy who always knew what he wanted to the degree that he could be difficult to work with, because he would say, no, we're going to do that scene again. You, uh, you know, I don't want you to ad lib there. You know, he he was a guy with a not just a clear creative vision, but a, a real iron stubborn backbone about it. Huh. And so there's that stuff. And then, you know, famously him as an older man in front of award shows getting lifetime. The stuff that hadn't even, his younger audience wouldn't even been aware of and maybe hadn't happened yet when you and I were watching the show. But but that all kind of entered the, uh, oh, just to finish the story about Clemens. Oh, yeah, sorry. So I guess t- it went to the degree that Mr. Rogers was very supportive when Clemens decided to try marrying a woman, which was the style for a lot of sure. gay Christians of, he, of the time. John'd. Yeah, he, he Elton John did. Is that is that what we call it? I guess I just coined it, but yeah, he Elton John. Uh, and uh, Mr. Rogers was supportive of that. And later, you know, when that marriage shocker didn't work out, I think Mr. Rogers evolved on the issues too. And you know, he he would later say to him, "Hey, I was, you know, I was wrong about that. I'm I'm just I, I want you to be with someone you love. I you know, and I'm I'm glad you are now. And you know, I think this Clemens guy maybe has a book or a one man show or something about." his relationship with Fred and, and partly about how he evolved on these issues. But, um, but yeah, this idea that there was all this Mr. Rogers stuff that was not available to us watching the show is a big part of the legend now. And the, the ground zero for that, I think is that, uh, I think it's a 97 or 98 profile that Tom Janot wrote in Esquire magazine about the real Mr. Rogers, which was called, can you say hero? Right. And you want in that moment, I mean, it, it, it felt like I think I remember that article, and it felt kind of opening the page, like, oh no, what's the real underbelly? Yeah, please don't New Yorker him and discover that he's a tax fraud or a, you know, like I don't want an expose about Mister Rogers. Like, let there be one sacred thing, and then you read it, and, uh, and there isn't a. It, it's the opposite. It's yeah. like on TV, you thought maybe he was just doing a children's persona. The surprise ending is he was more so like that in real life. <laughs> you know, that he was he was literally some kind of superhuman saint answering every single fan letter by hand for hundred you know, he would come in and see the new stack and he would say his most profane word, he would say mercy. <laughs> apparently apparently when he had Lady Elaine on his hand, sometimes she would cuss. <laughs> But Fred would never say anything worse than mercy. And he's a guy who, who wanted to make sure his weight, he weighed himself every morning, hoping that it would still be 143 pounds because 143 is the number of letters in I love you. <laughs> he's not human. He's not human, this guy. Not only did he keep the same weird ascetic weight for, for 50 years, uh, he chose a weight based on I love you. His, his ethos of love and, uh, and acceptance. I haven't weighed 143 pounds since I was in seventh grade. Can you so imagine I don't... weighing 143 pounds? <laughs> That's so great. That should, that should have been the lead in the Esquire piece. Yeah. Um, but so the story, and it's the same thing when they made that recent documentary about him, you know, uh, for our futureling 
audience. You know, we're living in a time when suddenly there's been a resurgence, even though this guy's been dead for nearly 20 years. Uh, a, a documentary, uh, Oscar-nominated, I think, documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And then a fictional adaptation of the Juneau Esquire article called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks, our other a kind of a moral celebrity exemplar, playing Fred Rogers. And people would go to that documentary, and it's because you've seen so many of these documentaries, you are waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're right. waiting for... But there was a darker side to Fred. You know, because you go to these movies and it starts out all sunny and then halfway through you find out that a town in West Virginia, the kids all got leukemia because of this yeah. miracle drug. Or you find out that the music executive actually raped 20 women or, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's always that dark turn. And the Mr. Not Rogers- always the, the, uh, the Robert Evans pick, the kid stays in the picture. <laughs> it's just sunshine all the way through. Sunshine and cocaine. <laughs> All the way through, but how can there not? I mean, as I think now, the the um, the expectation is that there's going to be something dark. There's something dark in everyone. That's certainly been proven by a lot of modern culture, where it doesn't matter who you admire, if if they haven't been gotten in trouble yet, you just don't remember. Like, yeah, right. do you remember Dustin Hoffman got Me Too'd, and we don't. Nobody even remembers because twenty other. Awful men got me too to the same week. <laughs> I, I, I completely was not aware of that. But Tom Hanks is an example of somebody that doesn't appear to have a dark side. Only one. His son. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He, his son is actually a clone into which he drops all his, first of all, his white dreads, but also all his uh, his darker tendencies. Did Tom Hanks have a, did he get zapped? What, what no. What's the one? Oh, when you said only one, did you also mean his son? No, I meant like he's the one oh, celebrity that could play Mr. Rogers and kind of have that, the sense that he's just like that all the way through. Cause we correctly assume that most actors are narcissistic weirdos whose bubble has turned them into a tyrant. I, uh, I went to an Emmy award party one time in Hollywood and Tom Hanks was there and had won an Emmy for some show. And he and his wife were there. One of his HBO shows. One of Yeah. Some and show. the brothers or yeah. the moon one. And, uh, he taped the Emmy to the hood of his car as a hood ornament and drove <laughs> off with everyone cheering. Uh, it's just a regular guy. I don't like to tell the story because it seems braggy, but he wrote me a note not that long ago because he liked one of my books. Oh, how sweet. And when I say wrote, I mean he typed it on his one of his collection of antique typewriters. And uh, That's it, nice. It's like a full page where he like um, engages with all the points of the book. And, uh, you know, cause he's, he's, I knew he was a Jeopardy fan from way back, but, uh, and then like, as if that's not, there's a handwritten note at the end and as if that's not superhuman enough, he, it was the, it was that month when the U S postal service seemed very embattled. Yeah. He enclosed a pane of stamps, like here's some stamps. we got to support the post office. And of course they were like votes for women stamps too. Cause he's Tom Hanks. They were like right. the most morally pure of the stamps. But to imagine Tom Hanks, you know, sitting in his house and thinking, I'm going to write that Ken Jennings a letter. I sure enjoyed that book I just got at the airport. I got to let the author know. It's a very Fred Rogers impulse. Yeah, really, really lovely. Please do not, please do not try and take Tom Hanks down. Please, world. Please, world. Uh, so that Tom Janot piece and then the subsequent two movies has kind of led to a world where Mr. Rogers has been rediscovered. You can still see. Th- Again. Yeah, again, I guess. There hasn't been a... My son started watching it as a teen huh. on a few episodes. Uh, they cycle new episodes onto his website on and off. I don't know if 
PBS Kids still has it, but it, you can find it streaming on Amazon. And my son and his friends would just kind of watch that and Bob Ross and other kinds of anti-entertainment, you know, just the opposite of the 2020 boisterous entertainment. Like just to chill? Yes. And they don't smoke weed or anything. Maybe that's why. Right. Maybe if they smoked weed, they wouldn't need Bob Ross. So they're, they're, they just, they needed a break from, from Twitch gaming. Yeah, exactly. From Twitch. And so just like, like hanging out, some teens, just chilling. Just, just watching, watching Mr. Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, make clay and make maybe make a little tower out of Dixie cups. Oh. Uh, and he started, my son started wearing cardigans and Whoa. I almost think his, my son's cardigans and Converse kind of, uh, look is, is Fred Rogers. It's like norm core all the way. It's like, yeah, what's more, it's norm. It's so normal that it's, as we've said about Fred himself, it's right. abnormal. It's, it's like mom core. <laughs> I do feel like Fred Rogers is a good fit for Mormons. He does seem Mormon. Because it's like, you know, there is some moral backbone, but really you don't notice it because what you notice first is just kind of this wholesome gentleness. Yeah. And I do think that's my... But there is... But the darkness in Mormonism... That's the thing. That's the what the. Sure. That's the documentary I really want to see. I mean, sure. There's. I don't know what if there's an equivalent to Mister. If there is an equivalent to roughshod pioneer life, you know, uh, <laughs> fiery oratory and pioneer life in Mister Rogers's. Is Mormcore a thing that you guys say? No, but I'm going to Google it right because now. I feel like Mormcore should be. Do you want the URL or something? That should be a thing. I want what that what on even t-shirt. is Mormcore? Well, it's it's like Normcore except Mormon. Yeah, but what does that look like to you? Jello, more Jello, more Jello, even than, than Normcore. Because <laughs> if you imagine, like if you go if you go to Utah, you'll find that it's not quite in line with what you would think of as default clothes. There's some Mountain West, yes. kind of. Uh, we don't care what the coasts are wearing. Eccentricity. It's the. I mean, the the most recent time I saw a woman wearing a bonnet. It was in Salt Lake City. <laughs> that's not, I just want to say that's not representative or typical. But I was watching the, um, there's a Netflix documentary about the uh, Mark Hoffman forgeries and bombings of the 80s, oh, yeah. which is kind of a, a weird forgotten sidelight in Mormon history. So there's all this local news footage from Salt Lake City in the early 80s. That would be a good omnibus. And uh, I think I was going to do it before it became, you know, Netflix's true crime of the year. Oh, oh, it's a, it's a show S- now. S- yeah, same reason we didn't do the Rajneesh. Right, right. Uh, but the the people in these it's it's the early eighties, but these people are wearing clothes that are from some kind of indeterminate time. It's like somebody saw a few pictures of seventies fashion and tried to recon like aliens did saw it and tried to reconstruct a a, a society and a wardrobe and a set of customs from it. Right, because everything's kind of subtly wrong. The pastels are a little bit off, and the collars on the anchor women are a little weird and it, it just sort of shows that you know mormons would like to be the mainstream but the fact that they are in utah surrounded by mountains means they have kind of a maybe by design a kind of very approximate understanding of it they're just tuning into the short <laughs> yeah. <way> like <laughs> <laughs> um so you know we i alluded to mr rogers's history he was a Dartmouth dropout who ended up at Rollins University in Florida. Why did he drop out of Dartmouth? I think he always just said he didn't feel at home there. If you've ever been to that part of New Hampshire, there is nothing to recommend it except for within the fence of Dartmouth. And even Dartmouth is... 
Well, isn't it? I've never, I've never been to Hanover, but isn't it a big, it's, it's animal house, right? It's a big for Greek scene. There is that around the college, but Hanover, I mean, New Hampshire, let's, let's be honest to, to all the future links listening who are from New Hampshire, you more than anyone knows what I'm talking about when I say New Hampshire. <laughs> Everybody from Alabama was so nervous when you did a show about Mobile. Yeah. Because I guess I, I, it never really occurred to me. They they just have PTSD about getting mentioned in the media because when is it good? They always get flamed. Everyone in Alabama is. is but, you know, people in New Hampshire only get flamed right. by, by people in uh, Vermont. In, well, in like, you know, the, the Northeast, because no one else knows anything about New Hampshire. So who would only Vermont and Connecticut even know enough to flame them? So should we turn our fury on yeah. New Hampshire yeah. and other? Yeah. I feel like this show has never, we've never gone after the Deep South for cheap punchlines. Oh, uh, we do. We, I mean, we've gone after them bit. for Jim Crow, maybe, yeah. but we're not like, whoa, they marry their sisters. Derp, derp, derp. But no, I think we should turn. I think New England should be the. the That's place the enemy. That we really turn our scorn. <laughs> we're gonna we're, we're gonna lose John Hodgman. Uh, he went. He wound up at Rollins College. You know, one of the students who met him at the airport to show him around when he transferred turned out to be uh, his future wife, the future Joanna Joanne Rogers. So That's he how it happens. He married. Uh, I think the year after he gra- he graduated magna cum laude in fifty one, and his degree is music composition. Right, I knew that. Uh, he loved music. And he was very good at the piano. He was. Uh, and I almost think that's the, that's one of the secrets of his show is the, I mean, so when you talk about what the appeal is of Mr. Rogers, he, he didn't, he had never seen TV, I think until his senior year in college. And, Me too. And <laughs> just like, just like generate, I mean, partly that's because he was extremely old. He was Fred Rogers's greatest generation, I think born in like 28 or oh, something. Oh, is that right? Well, let me find he out. He always seemed younger, but I guess he was quite a bit younger in the 70s, <laughs> where we he was perpetually trapped. Yeah, born in 1928. Oh. So, you know, he, the My reason why age. he didn't see TV until the early 50s is because there wasn't much to see. But he was immediately um, just shocked at what the children's programming was. And it seems like it's an aesthetic. It's, it's two things. One, he feels like he doesn't understand children well. You is know, it that it was Punch and Judy or? Yeah, it's it's puppets hitting each, it's, you know, clowns throwing pies and, uh, you know, because Mr. Rogers' show actually borrowed its format from all these afternoon children's shows that we will have to explain to a future audience because even in our time, they don't exist anymore. Right. Where just some local character would do kind of a series of wacky low rent skits on a little stage. In our case, the beloved J.P. Patches. Gotta love J.P. Uh, and then... There, it would all be kind of a wraparound for some cheaper public domain cartoons, you know, whatever, whatever uh, Popeye or Felix the Cat cartoons were in a cheap package or not under copyright. Uh, and that's exactly how Mr. Rogers worked, except it was him in a house instead of in a studio with a live audience. And it would all wrap around this kind of imaginative journey to a make-believe neighborhood. Um, and then he'd come back just like J.P. Patches or whoever would come back from the cartoons. Oh, right. So he was borrowing the the vernacular of that genre, but he hated it. He watched it and he thought, first of all, it doesn't understand kids. You know, they'll, there'll be a cartoon wolf uh, gnashing its teeth. And you know what? Kids are scared of biting. You know, somehow Mr. Rogers saw this connection with kids. He was like, if that was me, I would be talking about how, yeah, it's okay to be scared of biting and you know, we shouldn't bite. And you know, that's, that's what Mr. Rogers thinks when he sees a cartoon wolf. Did- did he have any 
Was there any reason that he would be so attuned to what kids? I don't think there's ever any, like, I've never heard stories of any particular childhood trauma or difficulties. I mean, the thing they talk about in all these documentaries is that he wasn't happy because he was introverted. And I guess this explains the 143 pounds. He was, he was kind of a husky kid. He was, he was an overweight, shy kid. He had asthma. So I think he had some of these insecurities, even though he, he didn't have a bad home life or anything. Right. Um, so I guess that's kind of, that's where he gets his just, uh, Jesus figure like fixation on, you know, who's the one kid who's suffering the most, who are the, who are the Samaritans and the prostitutes who need my help. So he, he invented an entire school of thought of like young, of young childhood development out of whole cloth. Yeah, he, he knew, didn't uh, study it he, in college. No, I mean, and there were, he did have advisors on the show. You know, he did work with child development experts and the show morphed as he, as he talked to them at first, his early years, the show would kind of blur uh, reality and fantasy a little bit more, you know, um, the trolley would just come out by itself. And after a few years that started to bug him in conversations with, with child development people, he wanted viewers to see him hit the switch that made the trolley come out. You know, he wanted everyone to know he was pretending to talk to the trolley by the same token. He had that little screen in his house where he would show videos of how they make crayons or macaroni or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mr. McFeely would bring over a tape. Bloop, 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 bloop. Uh, oh, a funny story about that is he would speedy put the delivery. Speedy deli- he would put the tape in a little slot and I guess the stagehand back there that would take the tape for many years was Michael Keaton, the future comedy actor. What? Really? Yeah. A young Michael Keaton, then named Michael Douglas, he had to change his name for union reasons, uh, was the stagehand back there taking the tape. Huh. And sometimes when the sl- he opened Did he have sl- other jobs? or I mean- That was it. No, sometimes he was the guy in the panda suit, too, oh, okay. if you remember the purple panda. Of course. Yeah, he was just an all-purpose assistant type grip uh, Pittsburgh public TA. Also a, a, a from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Apparently. Wow. And it's, sometimes when he opened the slot to take the tape, he would say, uh, what are your sins, my child, or something, and, and, and crack Mr. Rogers up. Because he was already Michael Keaton, baby. <laughs> what a nut. Uh, so so he, you know, he the show did evolve as he kind of got more book learning about how kids' brains actually work. But he seemed to have a very good instinct for it. But the other thing he didn't like about kids TV as he first experienced it as a 20, you know, mid to early twenties man is, uh, he just didn't like the vibe. He just thought it was, I guess this is his, his internal Fred or his internal Mormon or whatever. He just thought it was kind of noisy and yeah, a unpleasant, little unseemly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just a really, really aggro for some, like needlessly. So, you know, what if instead of hitting your friend with a pie, you just told your friend how much they meant to you? It's funny because there's a daycare very close to my house, and uh, they go out and play in the backyard a f- couple of times a day. And the woman that runs the daycare, is she just screams. Well, that's uh, not good. Well, but I mean, <laughs> she just lays on the ground. <laughs> I hate my life. No, her. She's got a. She's got whatever fifteen kids back there, and she just addresses them at the top of her lungs because she has to. Or no, oh okay, not at all. Like <laughs> she could just talk to them, right? She could say like, "Okay, everybody, like, come on over here." She's just a Jane Lynch character. She's just like, "Okay, all right, everybody, now come on over. Okay, let's go." And it's at the literal top of her lungs all afternoon. And I never really thought about it before until I, you know, until I was kind of overhearing it. 
what a different experience those kids are having of life. Like the, like the adult. And, and so the, the, the assistants that she has, the younger women that work for her also mimic her style. So the loudest thing about this daycare <laughs> is the grownups that are just like, and it's, they're not angry. They're not, it's not hostile. It's just shouting. And, and the fact that it's needless, you know, they have just, they're just in a tiny little backyard. They could, yeah, they could just talk uh, or so, even so, some, whisper. Sometimes the quiet voice is what gets the kids quiet. Yeah. yeah. But you see that in those 1950s uh, and 60s, like daytime kids programs. Everything came from vaudeville. Everything had to be big. Yeah. That's weird. And I think, I honestly don't know if Mr. Rogers could have uh, articulated any moral or psychological objection to it. He just thought it was a bad scene. He, he thought it was kind of an unseemly vibe, you know? And you can see that in every second of his show. That yeah. I almost think that's the appeal. I mean, that's certainly what my son saw in it. It's not really the lessons about acceptance and kindness, although that's what Tom Janot and Mr. Rogers' other hagiographers would like to say. I really almost think we should just be celebrating just the gentle aesthetic of a show it's where... Oh, so slow. Yeah, like there was. there's once a time when... Um, What's supposed to happen? Some guy brings over a mic and he's going to listen to the fish so we can actually hear what the fish sound like when they eat. And Mr. Rogers puts um, puts the fish food in the tank and the fish are just not hungry. They're just, and uh, the guy's all like, well, I guess they're not, you know, the guy's getting a little jumpy. Well, maybe if I tap on the glass and Mr. Rogers is like, no, no, let's, let's just wait. So, you know, so just five minutes of dead air on the show while we watch the fish until one of them finally decides to come over to the mic. And to him, that was a perfect show. He's oh, like, perfect. he's like, that's a good, a good lesson for kids. You know, that sometimes you just have to wait. And, and maybe that's kind of just a post hoc rationalization for the fact that that's the kind of TV he liked. Yeah. You know? Well, it, it is true though, that, um, even, you know, as, as an entertainer, as somebody that's up on stage or at least, spent 20 years on stage learning that you don't have to make you, learning that you don't have to do something every second Yeah, that you can be on stage. And I remember, did you, did you ever see the band unwound? No, never. You know, unwound was very, uh, was a, a very intense experience to see that band. You know, they were, they were, uh, very, very, uh, almost, kind of threatening. Although you wouldn't look at them and think they were threatening, but musically, like it's, it's very a, intense. It's a sonic assault. And I went to see them one time and they, they took the stage and the, the, the lead singer and guitarist name is Justin. And he came out on stage and he stood in front of the microphone and lit a cigarette and it's a, a sold out crocodile, right? And this was back when everybody was smoking. So, you know, everybody was also smoking. The room was just full of smoke. But the lights were, the stage lights were all the way up. The room was just like hot and sweaty and just percolating. There'd been two bands already. Like everybody was just in full rock and roll mode, ready for Unwound to like go, go berserk. And he stood there and smoked an entire cigarette, just kind of staring out at the crowd, not making eye contact with anyone, you know, just sort of like casually lost in thought, just smoked a whole cigarette. And it was the most intense stagecraft <laughs> I had ever seen. I still think about it all the time. Like, yeah, nobody shouted at him. Nobody was like, get the show on, you know, like that type of thing that, that audiences one, one drunk guy will do. Yeah. It was just, but we weren't all silent either. I mean, people were talking. It was still, 
a room, but um, he finished that cigarette. And you know how long it takes to smoke a cigarette. I mean, it's five minutes or whatever. Smoked that whole thing. And then, you know, threw the butt down, turned his guitar up and... <laughs> it was it was tremendous, and uh, it took me a long time to learn that I didn't have to dance around, that you could just be on stage and be yourself, and if you needed to pause, if you if you uh, if you just needed a moment, you know, the audience will give it to you. Yeah, your your level of calm and connection with the audience on stage is not un Mister Rogers like. I would say a little, I'm a little more hostile than he was in the sense well, of everyone, yeah. every single human on earth, <laughs> even Tom Hanks is a little more hostile than he was. I don't remember. So, so a little history of the, the history of the show here. I mean, Sesame street just, you know, would do hundreds of episodes a year for decades. You never saw this, you know, they would repeat the same little animations and, and Ernie and Bert skits, but it, the wraparound stuff would always be different. But Mr. Rogers show was very much unlike that. You know, he finally got the money to go national from Sears Roebuck in 1967. They had some oh. foundation that gave him enough money that he could finally be on NET, this precursor to PBS. And uh, his little local children's puppet show went national. And that year, he did like 130 black and white shows. And then for the next five years or so, when he went to color, and they did about 65 shows a year. But after 1975, he took a hiatus. He was like, you know, that's enough. That we can just show these shows over and over to kids, and uh, I've done my. That's kind of my work. Maybe he's still skeptical of TV as as the a way to spend your life, I guess. And you know, I was seven years old in 1975. I mean, just like I was right in the heart of it. And at that point in time, you know, watched Mister Rogers pretty religiously. They did show the reruns, but yeah. you were watching reruns, and for fully four years, he did not make a show. Which is crazy because that was about when I stopped, you know, 11 years old, I wasn't watching Mr. Rogers anymore. So I... And that's when I was watching it too. Right. I was just watching reruns. Me too. Yeah. Well, I first started Mr. Rogers and I had no idea they were early 70s. I guess maybe I should have known from the sideburn length. Yeah. But who, I mean, you know, in the in the who late knows? 70s, people were still... Um, and then, them. and he didn't, in 79, he finally came back by all accounts. I mean, speaking of this difference between imagination and reality thing... He was troubled by a story, stories in the news about kids who didn't know the difference between what they were seeing on TV and reality. You know, a lot of the spate of kids who put on a towel for a cape and fell off their garage and, yeah, and yeah. broke a leg or whatever. They're following their Dungeons and Dragons dreams down into the sewers. I wonder if it was some of that. <laughs> I guess 79 would have been too early, right? Uh, just before, Just right. before. Missed it by a couple of years. Anyway, but stories like that made him think, you know, I should get back on TV and talk more about this. He realized he still did have... You know, stuff to say, pet pet subjects that he thought he could address with kids, and and his old reruns that he thought were going to be his corpus were not cutting it anymore. It, it, I think part of the the fact that we didn't notice it was reruns is that so much of what we watched in the seventies was reruns, exactly because we were also watching Leave It to Beaver. Sure, right? I mean, Gilligan's we, Island after school. Yeah, and, it was all boomer culture that was just kind of being rehashed. And Sesame Street recycled the same, even though it was 200 new shows a year. They don't right. do that anymore. They well, haven't, they, they haven't for decades. Yeah, it would still be, uh, we all live in a capital I, uh, you know, every time I was the letter of the day. Right. Um, so in 79, he came back. But from then on, he only did around 15 shows a year. What? Until he wrapped it up in, 
in uh, 2000. No way! Yeah, there were only 15 new Mr. Rogers every year. And so interspersed with reruns throughout the yes, whole run? exactly. Kids in 1990 were watching shows from 1970. And we, I noticed this, that you know, you'd watch Mr. Rogers and the one in the morning, would be, he'd, he'd have gray hair and the one in the afternoon after school, he would have like black hair. How is that not disturbing <laughs> the kids? Well, he was very transparent. At first he would like go out, they had a garage set they only used in five shows and he would go out and be like, these are the tapes of my program my other television visits with you and sometimes i'm going to show you some of these old visits and we can enjoy them again together you know wow. uh so i he, feel so calm i know it's, <laughs> it's crazy just how he was he would show you the strings you know uh and and i think part of you know if his show is an aesthetic experience i think a huge part of it that doesn't get talked about a lot is the music you know he had this music background all the songs he the songs he would sing over and over which would they would get in your head because he sang them to you 30 times, but also because they were authentically catchy and he wrote them all himself. You know, like when he would do a slow thing like Feed the Fish, he would say, I like to take my time. I mean that when I like to do a thing. And, dun, 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 and they, would, they always felt kind of extemporized. Yes. You know, just sort of like, I'm coming up with a melody today. But they stuck with millions of kids. I think they're really, right. I think they're actually good songs. And a lot of the reason for that extemporaneous quality is because the music on the show was all live. He had right. an Whoa, accomplished right. jazz pianist. That did the trolley? Yeah, he did the piano. And also the Celeste, you know, that kind of, um, a Celeste, which I didn't know is, is a, it's got a piano like keyboard, but the hammers hit, uh, hit, uh, you know, wood resonators over bells, like a xylophone, I guess. Have you ever seen or played a Celeste? Celesta? Say it again. It has hammers and it plays a xylophone? Yeah, you're, you're playing on a, on a piano-like keyboard, but the, it's not hitting strings. It's hitting a, essentially a xylophone back there. I mean, in a way— Or Glockenspiel, because it's metal. That's how the Fender Rhodes and, the, uh, and the, the Wurlitzer electric piano work. I mean, they're hitting—you're playing piano, but it's hitting little yeah. bars, little, little bells. So that's how you get that kind of ethereal—if you can imagine that kind of chimey— celestial kind of bling plong bling yeah yeah jing plong bling plong in the background i'm surprised he didn't use like a clavinet like (laughs) (laughs) but there was a his music director was a guy named johnny costa who was a you know the best jazz pianist in pittsburgh you know like apparently a really gifted guy who loved you know the art tatum stride piano because again we have to remember these people were all incredibly old right mr rogers born in 1928 so these are like pre-bebop musicians who love jazz, but not, you know, bop hasn't been invented yet. And he, this guy just loved Art Tatum. Yes. And I guess at one point he got to, you know, I don't know who would be alive to tell this story, but Johnny Costa, because Tatum died in the 50s. But apparently he got to play with Tatum once and Tatum said, "You man, you're the white Art Tatum. So Costa like dined out on that for the rest of his life. <laughs> said Art Tatum. <laughs> yes. Told me, I promise. I can't wait. I can't wait to be hanging out with somebody and be like, you know what? You're the Chinese John Roderick. <laughs> who Just would see like, how it flies. Who would you like to call you? <laughs> I'm the white, their name. Like, who would be your uh, dream there? Well, my Muhammad Ali's dead, so. Uh, let's see. Who, you mean, oh, who would say to me, yes. like, you're the white? Who would be the celebrity of color who would say, man, you're the white? <laughs> Boy, that's a good one. I would like to. I would Trini like, Lopez. <laughs> I would like it to be. I, I I think I would really like it to be Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. Like, 
You know what, John? You're like the white Michael B. Jordan. What an odd, I'd say what, like, yeah. What an odd choice for me to make for me, Michael B. Jordan, to say to a 50-something white man, but there's just something about you. You know what? I don't know. You just have the vibe. You kind of look like me. <laughs> uh, but Costa could really play. Um, and there's an on the Mr. Rogers website, I looked up Costa's, uh, Costa's little webpage, and they have a story about Wynton Marsalis coming on to show Mr. Rogers how to, how to you know, play the trumpet or, or oh, I've seen I've seen that episode. Sure, he always had guests. He had Yo-Yo Ma. And... Well, this is the crazy thing. Only 15 episodes a year, is that what you were saying? Or 15 episodes total? 15 episodes a year from 79 on. It meant that somehow I was able to absorb yes. a lot of those episodes just by osmosis, right? Because there weren't that many. There weren't that many. So it's like, oh, the Wynton Marsalis yeah, one. Yeah, sure, yeah. I saw Yo-Yo that. Ma. Uh, and I guess, um, according to Mr. Rogers' website, Wynton Marsalis said, man, this cat can really play. And cat is in quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, as it would be. Like jazz people always say. <laughs> He's not a real cat. This cat. He's a, you know, he's a, it's a jazz term for a person. It's a jazz, like a jazz cigarette. <laughs> like a jazz cigarette is a term for a, a kind of cigarette. So there would always be a band playing live and, you know, and they would go to great lengths to just kind of match the Mr. Rogers's mood and even to hit the, to kind of Mickey Mouse the beats of whatever he was doing. You know, he always wanted to make sure that's why Mr. Rogers throws his sneaker in the air and catches it after he takes it off. Is because uh, Costa liked to try to match that to the brum brum, you know, a little some little piano trill. Oh, so they're just having a good old time there, having their Presbyterian rock and roll moments. They take it seriously, but yeah, they are a tight band who really, right. and it's a really important part of the of the mood of the show. I think I think that's why no other show feels like it, because you don't have this kind of. Uh, and Mister Rogers was the first to say this: like kids know what good music is, and they can tell if there's like a skilled jazz piano guy scoring their their uh, afternoon viewing. Yeah. Like, that was his sincere belief. Well, it's true, except I remember as my musical tastes evolved, I remember even as a kid transitioning to feeling like his music was corny. Um, not, And it was because I'd heard the Beatles. Because you were in the Kiss Army now. Well, yeah, a little bit. Like, I think I joined the Kiss Army in 78. And at that point, I mean, what was I, 10 years old? But at that point, the like, I mean, jazz was no longer the vernacular. And so the vibe did feel a little bit old, dated. Old, yeah, dated, old timey. But again, that goes, that, to me, that's perfectly hand in hand with just that gentle, out of step with the times, Mr. Rogers thing. Yeah, sure. The music doesn't sound like anything you would hear anywhere else because you're in a weird. That weird zone of his TV house. Not my real house. I'm going to go home to my real family, but now I'm with you visiting my television family. What, what, but it's crazy to, like, it, it basically proves his point that kids do know what good music is. And at a certain point, you're capable, even as a kid, of kind of growing away yeah. from the sound of Mr. Rogers and his, and his, like, tight little combo. Well, I was thinking between that and the, um, the Vince Guaraldi Charlie Brown specials. Mm. Like those are all shows that have that weird kind of, they just feel like childhood. Yeah. And yeah. I almost think that is, must be the, the key to, that must be the key to children's TV music is you need to have like really good intricate jazz piano. Or what's even the point? Just the melancholy Christmas time is here again while they're walking in the snow. Well, and the choirs, the, 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 uh, the Charlie Brown music always has those weird um, jazz choirs. Yeah, exactly. 
Anyway, the mu- music was so important to the show. Here, so my, I guess my uh, coming, you know, I'm finally going to get to the topic of the show, which is no, Mr. Rogers and the opera. I'm having such a good time. Well, I wanted to get to Mr. Rogers and the opera because I think he's been celebrated so much for his public persona that we don't really, ex- with the exception of maybe my son and his friends, we don't remember what the actual show was like. The Mr. Rogers show. What Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was like because we're remembering him testifying to Congress or telling Hollywood bigwigs to take a minute and remember people who helped them, or, you know, him telling kids on 9-11 to look for the helpers. You know, we don't remember him just uh, squishing his feet through sand for eight minutes, or, uh, or uh, you know, getting a, a radio from his delivery, from the mailman, or, or whatever. What's funny is, you know, I have a 10-year-old, and when she was three, four, five, and six, I showed her Mr. Rogers all the time, so I... St- I have a real recent memory of of the shows, and I guess I just assumed that everyone does. Like he's he was such a part of my life yeah. as a young person, but also then part of my life as a father. And I just feel like he he absolutely permeates the the world in a way that I can imagine. I can imagine their thirty year old futurelings listening to this show from under the ocean, going like. I've I've never seen Mr. Rogers. When Tom Janot wrote that Esquire piece, he called it Can You Say Hero? And that's actually, Mr. Rogers never did the Can You Say thing. That's something that Eddie Murphy did when he did his uh, Mr. Robinson's kind of, you know, bad part of town neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He would do, you know, Can You Say uh, Rehab or, or, or whatever, you right. know? And, you know, so th- even, even that, the seminal piece of Mr. Rogers' hagiography is based on a misconception of what the work was like for people who never actually saw or don't remember the show. Right. Like he was conflating it with some other more pedantic children's stuff. Like, yes, exactly. Can you say pen? That's like the romper room stuff that maybe Mr. Rogers wouldn't have loved everything about. Uh, But the highlight for, for real neighborhood heads was like your son, like me and my son and apparently you was Opera week. There would be operas on, and if you ask kids today, hey, you know who Mr. Rogers is? Yeah. Did he ever do operas on his show? No. I don't remember operas on his show. See, that's the thing. People don't remember the opera. So I, the only reason why I wanted to do this on Omnibus is because I'm trying to stay away from the Gen X stuff, but this has really fallen down the memory hole. Mr. Rogers is like basically on the flag now. Yeah. And we don't remember he did operas. And this was the highlight that a lot of the the kids looked forward to because the viewers would look forward to because it was really the only thing that ever happened out of the ordinary on the show. You know, like, you know, every show he'd do something cool. He'd go watch some guy play the banjo or something. But, it, you know, he, he believed variety was very important. Every kid is different. You know, today it's going to be something about animals, but tomorrow it's going to be something about machines. And, you know, he was, he was careful about that. But structurally, all the shows were very much the same except for Opera Week. Uh, Mr. Rogers was a fan of, you know, musical composition major, loved music of all genres, loved classical, loved opera. And he had gone to Rollins with... He loves all kinds of music, classical, opera. Everything but rap and country. That's what he always said. (laughs) He went, he had gone to Rollins with a guy named John Reardon, Mm. who went on to be a big, uh, well, like a musical theater star, like a Broadway musical star, and then a baritone with the New York Philharmonic. Mm. So like a legitimate opera world star, John Reardon. And he would, he and John Reardon decided they would collaborate on operas on his show. So again, you know, the, the regular TV house part of Mr. Rogers is not fanciful at all. 
that's again just him feeding the fish or, or or talking about sad feelings for for long stretches of time. But then you get a ten minute break when the trolley comes and whisks us away to the neighborhood of make believe where there's larger than life characters. Uh, they're all puppets. They can do. There's colorful costumes and sets. Uh, there's uh, magic. They can do uh, fantasy, fan, you know, fanciful things. Each character is larger than life and represents part of Mr. Rogers' personality. I don't want to derail you from the opera story, but I always found the land of make-believe to be very scary. Oh, that's my favorite part of the show. Well, yeah, but I just didn't—I felt like Lady Elaine was very unpredictable, da- dangerous chaos agent. She is. And I felt, She's Loki. And I felt like— the like the king didn't really know what was happening, and uh, you want a stable government like Westwood? Yeah, just, Westwood uh, has a mayor. It just felt like there wasn't anybody in charge, and when a human being, you know, the, the, when the humans were there, yeah. in land to make believe, interacting with them, they'd be his friends from real life, but in slightly different costumes, kind of like Wizard of Oz. I always was very calmed by them. I was glad they were there. Like, please have some human beings here because this is Betty Aberlin will know what to do. Yes, like this owl's going a little nuts right now. I, I kind of went. I I I uh I went and looked up Betty Aberlin not very long ago because you had a crush. On I her did. Still. I had a massive crush on her still. But yeah, I, I always felt like the land of make believe was, and I and I I was maybe embarrassed by the fact that I was uncomfortable there. Um, I had Sesame Street skits. I was very afraid of. I, I I'm the same way. But I, I always liked the neighborhood of make believe just because it was like a bigger canvas, you know, like, and, and it had continuing adventures. When he came back and did the three weeks of shows a year. Each week kind of had a theme, and so it would have a dramatic arc, particularly in the neighborhood of make-believe. So there would be a cliffhanger soap opera element like, boy, uh, X the Owl and Henrietta Pussycat are having a fight, or Lady Elaine has closed the museum go-round, or, right. you know, let's see what happens today. Uh, that was the stuff I was always hanging on. And There was one where they were going to tear down the land of make-believe and <gasps> build, a, build something build something else, and they were— it's about, I, it's about gentrification? Yeah, I think so. Maybe I'm just—maybe I'm remembering something from my own life. No, I bet that was. I bet that absolutely happened because a lot of the stuff was designed to be around what kids would be, would have big feelings about. You know, moving houses is scary. Even watching water go down the sink is scary. Let's do a show about how when water goes down the sink, you're not going to go down the sink or, or uh-huh, whatever. Uh-huh. Like it's really Mr. Rogers thinking like a kid. And I, I do want to say, by the way, that I think this is as important as the gentle aesthetic is and how badly we need it. I do love that there was actually somebody on TV who understood children i mean that going down the the water going down the drain is scary you gotta you gotta (laughs) teach that at some point no i just think we're awash in smart good children's entertainment today and i think i've said this on omnibus before it is all it is all written by middle-aged people about their feelings as parents yeah 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 you know right every pixar movie is about Growing apart from your kids yeah. or realizing you're not young anymore. I took, I went to the, uh, the new Disney movie and the thing before the little short they showed before it was about two oldsters who, uh, are just don't, don't have the spark anymore, but then a magic rainstorm lets them dance. Hmm. There is no, it's a beautiful little thing and it sure. conveys, it, it's not designed for four-year-olds at all. No. They've really given up on the idea that you would make a cartoon to resonate with the weird mind of a child. The whole prologue of the movie Up. Yeah, exactly. Is, I mean, is designed to make a 45-year-old cry bitter to like 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 ugly cry and kids just are like get on with let's, the show. Let's get to the, you know, kids because the child's brain is actually a different 
organism. It's like they're a different species. They're in a whole different culture. Right. And Mr. Rogers was one of the few people who, who had the dictionary, you know, that had this, who could speak the language. I guess who, who today, if not, I mean, Pixar to me is the, I love Pixar movies, but they're the opposite of this. I guess maybe Miyazaki, if he's still working, like that's a guy who understands the weird inner life of kids and they, his kids will just, you know, walk on a railing in a funny way or spend a few minutes poking at a puddle with a stick or things aren't exactly linear, but he doesn't care. The emotional resonances are not designed to hit, to hit adult heart tugging beats. But it also feels a little voyeuristic. I mean, when my daughter watches those movies, um, and maybe it's because she's a product of, of, well, she spends, you know, as a 10 year old, she's on Twitch all the time, just killing zombies, but she's got 1 million TikTok followers, but no, she watches the movies and she's like, where is this going? You know what it is, is that she's very narrow. She's watched star Wars. And uh, so in star Wars, she's got, have, she wants Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Right. And, and, and those, the, those films are just like, I, I think she, and she says this about books too, that are of that school where she's like, why am I watching somebody else's day? <laughs> Like she's I, not a good Mr. Rogers uh, audience member anymore, huh? Not anymore, yeah. no. Because she's like, I have my own day. I have my own things that I'm doing. Why would I watch somebody else like make lunch? Maybe Star Wars is the tipping point then, where kids don't want gentle fables about their own heads. Everything in Star Wars involves, I mean, every single thing is a is a war, right? Mm-hmm. It's all, every every decision anybody makes, it's just like they're in combat constantly. Everything is in combat. The whole universe. And that was very attractive to me as a kid. Oh, there's rebels and there's imperials. Yeah. Rebels and imperials. Got it. Rebels right, and right, imperials. Right. And they are fighting. And then they Rebels fighting. have American accents. Imperials have British accents. <laughs> Every time you go through a door, there's going to be somebody trying to kill you. Every time you, you know, and then you go back through the door and there's someone on the other side trying to kill you. And I think, I think Star Wars has done a terrible thing to my daughter. Um, Maybe that's the inflection point of everybody wanting... And I thought, it was right I, about this same time. Right? I thought about this last week when Beverly Cleary died. You know, that was somebody who really just somehow never lost the part of her brain that remembered the just the terrifying huge feelings of being a child in a big in a big big world right but um but mr rogers remembered that and you know i think the neighborhood of make believe would kind of expand on that because lady elaine she's a mischief maker but she's his mischievous side and um, king friday is kind of a what a a buffoon like a stuffed yeah. shirt ineffectual kind yeah. of grown up man but, but but a bit of a blustery blowhard and i guess fred thought that was he had that in him too but the the little daniel tiger in the clock is kind of his inner child right. and so soft so scared right so they're all him you're inside his head when you're inside the neighborhood well that's the darkness in mr rogers because <laughs> it's every, like inside out yeah, every one of those they're all fighting <laughs> um, well they're, and they're just they're all like even daniel made me uncomfortable as a kid why you were attracted to him? A little. But no, that, that much timidity, that much fear, it felt yeah. like un, too unguarded. All, it's exactly. All the emotions that are totally unbridled or un, uh, mediated by any anything, any kind of ego yeah. or society. Like he's completely unsophisticated. And, and I think what I, I mean, growing up in the 1970s when adults were like putting out their cigarettes in your apple juice uh, or maybe not your, maybe not adults in your world, but it just felt like you can't be that unguarded. When, like, when are Daniel's parents going to have a key party? Like you definitely, you definitely cannot go through life like that, my little friend. So anyway, if, if one of these weeks was about, happened to be an opera week, which, yeah. ha, which happened every couple of years, uh, 
John Reardon, this uh, New York Philharmonic baritone, would kind of wander into the neighborhood where he was a oh, a friend him. to all the animals. I remember him now. They would just call him Reardon. There he was just Reardon. And, and King Friday would be like, Reardon, have you come to tell us about your musical achievements, yes. you know? And... Uh, and he would say, well, I, I'd like to put on an opera. It was, it was without explanation, this traveling troubadour that just wanted to organize a neighborhood opera. Um, but it had a real kind of let's put on a show thing. And the crazy thing about the – and then they would spend the week kind of pr- writing and rehearsing the opera. And on Friday, the final day of opera week, it would be a full-on 30 minutes of neighborhood of make-believe. Mr. Rogers would come in the house and get right to it. All right, you know, the the in the neighborhood of make-believe, they're ready to put on – uh, windstorm in Bubble Town or whatever. Let's watch. Here comes the trolley. And then the whole show would be an opera. And of course, Fred wouldn't be there because he'd be doing all the puppets. Right. But it would be Reardon and the other human characters. He wouldn't feed the fish that week. He wouldn't catch the shoe. It oh, was just like, boy. let's go. What do you? That's crazy. Would he not feed the fish that day? Well, I mean, that's the type of thing. If, he, if That's Friday. If, that's going to be a three-day weekend with no food for the fish. Yeah, if kids are worried about where he goes to the potty, some of them are going to wonder about the fish. Famously, a kid did worry about feeding the fish. Um, have you ever noticed he always said, time to feed the fish? He would say it out loud. That was because he got a letter from a dad who said, my five-year-old is blind, and when you don't say you're feeding the fish— She's worried you're not feeding the fish. <laughs> so that's Mr. Rogers again, always keeping the one, you know, the the one sheep in mind, right? And saying I'm feeding the fish because he's imagining the letter he wrote to to little wow. to, to little Roberta or whoever. Anyway, so the operas are cray cray. They are nuts. The during the week, it, the various neighbors have ideas like, I think I could be a switchboard operator in the in the opera, or somebody else would say like. Well, maybe I could be a hummingbird, and somebody else could say uh, there should be a laundromat. And so, and are all these ideas just coming from Mister Rogers himself? Like, is Fred Rogers just yes. like I want to be a switchboard? Well, he, the funny thing is, in real life, he's writing all the songs. Like, I think maybe maybe with Reardon, but he's it's a fun, creative thing for him that he gets to write a little opera. Yeah, and they're not operetta operetta, even though they're light and goofy. They're sung through. Like, there's no spoken dialogue between songs. They're they're legitimate. 28-minute operas. Really? Yeah. And uh, and on the show, it's various characters that are saying, and, you know, Reardon will be like, all right, okay, yeah, the hummingbird could go to a laundromat. What a great idea. You know, he'd be, he'd be very supportive. <laughs> but aren't all operas, don't they just sing about murder? I mean, all real operas are just like murder, That's what's murder, kind of funny. There's murder. none of the, I mean, there's none of the Sturm and Drang. It really is. And the, the songs are very kind of lightweight, yeah. like Mr. Rogers' songs. But there's, you know, but there's there's emotions and conflict which you don't normally have, except to small degrees in the neighborhood of make believe. I mean, they start the opera started small in 1968 with just a 10 minute black and white mini opera about a, a babysitter coming over to look after a kid because the mom's going out. He he started doing opera week all the way back 68, yeah. Wow. Uh, and Reardon, you know, comes in and plays the grandpa. And at the end, it's, it, this is just a 10 minute kind of interstitial. At the at the end. The mom, who is Betty Aberlin, your your uh-huh. crush, looks at the camera and says, "Don't worry, your your mom's going to come back after she leaves you with a sitter." Ta-da! Everybody, not ba- always true. Everybody by the way, BTW. <laughs> well, only once per. <laughs> they'll only leave once per mom. Most of the time, it's true. But out of that, it kind of grew into more and more elaborate. And the operas are just crazy. And I don't know. You know, Mister Rogers is a land without irony. And uh, and in a way, kind of a land without humor. You know, a joke to Mister Rogers is 
shaking a tambourine, you know? Oh, I know. What a funny sound that made. I'm going to do it again. And then he laughs. Ha ha ha. You know, genuine joy. <laughs> you're like, I don't get it. What was the joke? <laughs> and that's why I think you and I liked Sesame Street and Electric Company, because they had comedy skits. Well, that's right. And I mean, comedy was a part of our coping in the yes. in that era, right? We That's why we're the Gen X irony, uh, irony-reliant weirdos. Yeah, we all learned comedy as a way of of smoothing over whatever whatever terrible all the fucking cigarettes in my apple juice uh and he had none he had no uh no comedic darkness so i can't tell if the operas are supposed to be funny but it is very funny that they are operas and yet they have names like pineapples and tomatoes here's the plot of pineapples and tomatoes from 1970 when benjamin franklin yes Mm. X the owl playing Benjamin Franklin yes. meets with the operator and vice president of the pineapple can telephone company. A call comes in from an angry housewife who likes tomatoes, expressing her distaste for pineapples. Why would you call the pineapple VP to say you prefer tomatoes? Well, I've, I understand that 100%. The vice president visits her at her house, hoping to change her mind, her, her mind. Wow. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's that back when corporate America cared. This makes sense to me. After some prodding, he learns that she only loves tomatoes because she loves the color red. She, so okay. Benjamin Franklin, it's like still a, alive. It's like the little vampire girl on Adventure Time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Reardon, by the way, is playing the VP. So he's he's singing this in his big baritone. He invents. Oh, he gets XDL to invent pineapple cans in new colors, including red, and all is resolved. The the opera ends with a love song between the vice president and the operator, who admit to having feelings for each other. So the VP starts dating his his switchboard operator because they've solved the pineapple telephone or pineapple tomato mix up together. Uh-huh. So they do have some of the content of, you know, not the m- murder and and uh, and skullduggery of of opera seria, but you know they have some of them have the happy marriage ending of a light opera. Uh-huh. Um, in uh, potato bugs and potato bugs and cows from 1973 is about a lonely cow who befriends a potato bug. I have tried, and you cannot but befriend a potato bug. It doesn't end with the cow stepping on the. I mean, in this one, the potato bug is played by the big chef Don Brockett, who, by mm-hmm. the way, mm-hmm. plays the creepy guy in um, in uh, Silence of the Lambs who hisses through the bars that he can smell Jodie Foster's personal scent really yeah that's quite a transition whereas lady aberlin is playing the cow so so in this case the potato bug is taller than the cow right reardon's the farmer reardon always gets some some uh straight man thing he's a good looking guy with a little with a little mustache let, let and me a sassy ask you vibe. what book are you consulting over there you have a full you have a full like coffee table book. there was a there was a yeah uh, this got remaindered this mr rogers uh oh picture vi- book visual history i like yeah. it and uh, and this is where I was like, hey, other people do remember the operas because this thing legitimately, um, you know, talks about how the operas were a big hit with viewers and Fred loved doing them. And, you know, they got more and more complex as time went on. You know, by the end, by, oh, I remember these. Win- see, Windstorm and Bubble Land. This is the one where the hummingbird tries to save uh, this bubble-centric culture from... From a terrible windstorm, but wind it's but it also but, but the photos are crazy because there's also a porpoise and uh, a banana boat captain. Uh, oh, I remember Spoon Mountain, w- I, I, w- wicked knife and fork. Uh, just want a spoon, but that makes them evil that they don't have a spoon. This one is a, has a, a kind of a prince and leader hosen and a park ranger played by 
Betty Aberlin, if you ever wanted to see her in, in a kind of a Girl Scout uniform. I do. Uh, I'm actually just looking at uh, a Google image search of Betty Aberlin right now. And like, it, it's, it, so it's a regular Wednesday for you. <laughs> what, what I'm wondering is, are all of these topics things that he's called from kids' letters? It's, it seems so incredibly random. If it, was a, if it was a gag, you'd think, oh, yeah, this is funny. You know, they're um, like, what on earth is going on in this one? Oh, it's a trolley conductor and a drinking straw salesman that go into the jungle to find somebody's lost grandfather. Right, like either Fred Rogers. because Does that, he have that, some secret uh, drug habit? Is that what you're asking? Well, you, you made a comment about, about Dylan, like watching Mr. Rogers, but they're not high. Right. And there was always that kind of psychedelic i mean he's he's resolutely not psychedelic but in being not psychedelic during a during a psychedelic time that's really the most super psychedelic of the thing of all i mean and i would up your sweater i wouldn't get high and watch the land of make-believe because i think it would send me into a bad trip but i think a lot of people would be like yeah man like do you think people are watching these highlights you know oh for sure just eat some mushrooms and then watch uh Josephine the short necked giraffe. Yeah, that feels maybe like a more of a more of a I mean the problem with uh, the problem with Generation X is we can do nothing without irony. I mean the last thing you want is irony when you're on psychedelics. And yet I don't think that Generation X can do anything sincerely. These feel sincere because the cast really sells it. Yeah, right. The cast is never winking. You know, Reardon's a real opera star who's just singing his heart out about the troubles at the laundromat or right. whatever. Right. Um, by the time that the final one happened in 1989, uh, and it was a full three-episode epic called Josephine the Short-Necked Giraffe, which is actually a funny opera that Fred had written back in college just for fun. So, I mean, the fact that it goes back to him in the 50s writing <laughs> college days. writing goofy, like that's his college goof is to write an opera about a giraffe. Right, never had a beer. I mean, that just shows kind of his whimsical side, I guess. You know, or or his connection to, again, childlike Miyazaki beats that don't have to make any sense. His out of timeness. Yeah, exactly. Like he's it's he's not troubled by the fact that it's silly or weird to have a giraffe singing an opera. It just that was his first idea, and guess what? Yeah. Like I, it comes from me, so it's good. I mean, that was that's the ethos of the show, right? You're you're special. Yeah, that I mean, and that uh, is so unique in. In a way, I mean, America has this reputation globally as a place full of like broad-shouldered people who are super confident, um, even you know, confident about their dumbest ideas. But but it's the confidence that uh, that defines us in a way. Mm-hmm. The the fact that we're just like, yeah, giraffe, you know, like sing an opera, like let's make a line of breakfast cereal about it. Um, That's Mister Rogers. There's something very confident about a grown man just. Um you know, putting drops of food coloring into things for five minutes in close up, and and super American in that yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, like without, like he had no commercial. He didn't have a gene in his body about selling things, right? He didn't. He never wanted to. Right. He was a he was a radical socialist in a way, right? I mean, he was not. I mean, just in the sense that King Friday was such a a pompous bore. Um, He's anti-royalist for sure. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, this is only possible because Sears Roebuck is giving him a ton of money. Right. So. But it's, you know, he lives in a modest house, although, you know, it's a nicely appointed house. It has a bathroom. It has a bathroom, but apparently no bedroom. 
Oh, there's no bedroom. I don't know. Is there? He sleeps on the couch, maybe? I mean, no, no, no. It's not his real house. He's he, very clear he, about he that. He always says he, he's just he's going to come here for 28 minutes, and then he's going to go back. I, this is, I have a real family. Let's see. He's got... I have a real family. It's not you. I've heard that so many times from so many stepdads. You remember hearing about your dad's second secret second family. Um, I'm going back to my real family. No, there is no there is no bedroom in the house. Oh, you have a you have a uh, I'm looking a, an up, as I'm, built there. I, huh? I'm looking at blueprints here. <laughs> you ever see you ever see Mr. Rogers' house from above? There's the angle. Oh, trippy. See, you don't want to see that. So, are the operas collected anywhere as recordings? I don't think so. Feels like they should be on like. Like really thick vinyl. I mean, they they can be rerun and streamed the same way Mister Rogers has been available to be rerun for, reran for forty years. But does it? Uh, did you say rerun? Rerun. Yeah. Does it? Um, I mean, operas hang together when there's no visual. Sure, you people. Most go, of them do. But maybe people are enjoying the great arias more than the. The recitatives or the plot. I don't. I don't put Tosca on, but I think I do have it. Well, you're not a serial killer. You know, <laughs> who goes home and puts on an opera record? The the last opera, even though Mr. Rogers ran until 2000, he uh, he wrapped it up right before 9/11, which is oh smart. Wait not, a minute. Not a single. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Here's what it means. Not no, a, Mr. Rogers. Not a single died. 9/11 <laughs> happened on his watch. Oh, oh, good. It was only once he wrapped it up that bad things started to happen. Sure. He handed it off to George W. Bush. and There were rumors that he was going to hand off the show to like Chuck Aber, who is kind of a neighborly, genial guy in the neighborhood of make-believe towards the end of the show, and uh, or at least from the 80s on. And at one point, I think Mr. Rogers went to run an errand and left Chuck Aber to talk to the camera, the only other human who ever really did so, besides just saying, oh, hi, to the when you walked in the music store. Yeah. Um, but I don't know why, why would he do that? Was it, maybe it was a show about substitute teachers or something, step-parents? Yeah, and, I guess so. Get, any, get used to Mr. Rogers yeah. not being there too. But I guess there was never any plan for anybody to replace him. You know, he was the franchise. And, and even though the show lasted till 2000, there was never an opera after 1989. And in fact, Reard, John Reardon doesn't appear in the last one. And it's for a sad reason. He, oh. uh, like a lot of gay men in the arts in the late eighties, uh, John Reardon had AIDS for many years and finally died of AIDS-related pneumonia in 1988. Oh, no. Um, so the last decade of the show was opera-free. And maybe that's another reason why they've kind of been forgotten, you know, because if you're watching the last decade of Mr. Rogers, you would have no idea that there was this whole weird let's-put-on-a-show ethos that really kind of goes against the rest of the shows. This is not even a show kind of vibe, you know, where where you can just watch someone tap different kinds of flatware against the table and just be delighted when they make different sounds, you know, like that's, you know, the whole show is just about the lack of theatricality and sometimes, but sometimes there's these wild over the top adventures. You wonder, like, I'm sure that somebody has thought to do a super cut of just the land of make-believe segments, you know, kind of like the, the way the two Godfathers got, cut together uh, chronologically for ABC television. Right. If you took if you took those aspects out of context and just made a a new television show about the land of make believe. That's essentially what Daniel Tiger or whatever is. There's kind of a there's an animated post Mr. Rogers show now which has his lessons in a more zippy Dora the Explorer like Oh, setting. Why do I hate it so much? Yeah, I've never even heard of it. No, exactly. It shouldn't oh. it's an abomination, I think. I've never seen it, but 
but I'm pretty sure it's it shouldn't exist. What interests me about all of this is that the children's television workshop, the 1970s, there was so much psychology in children's programming, like a ton of I'm okay, you're okay almost, but like, yeah. uh, and not quite our bodies ourselves, but there was so much thought put into being thoughtful. And then somewhere along the line in the 80s, I think, children's programming went back to being all those cartoons, all the, yeah. every everything starting, I don't know what happened, He-Man, maybe Star Wars. Some of them actively harmful, like let's sell toys to these kids. The worst. Yeah. And the tone of them, all of the, you know, uh, baby Muppets, baby, all the baby characters, all the way to Elmo. And I know that Elmo is very divisive and I'm sure there are Elmo partisans uh, among the futurelings. In the future. But, um, and maybe even descendants of Elmo after, <laughs> after the Muppets you know, began reproducing. Elmo clones. But how is it that children's programming became so toxic, way more toxic than like some clown in Minneapolis hitting his friend with a bat? <laughs> I wonder if it was the presence of PBS, you know, like networks didn't feel like they had to compete because yes, there's always going to be something wholesome on channel six or whatever. So we can just we're crank free, up the violence and sex over we're, here. We're free to sell kids on, uh, you know, uh, GI Joe shooting lasers at, at Cobra or trying to sell Care Bears to their sisters. Yeah. I mean, even the, even, uh, the, the GI Joe stuff, as bad as it was, wasn't as bad to me, at least as the infantilizing screechy, um, uh, I, you know, I, I can't even describe it because it, it hurt my eyes and ears. Um, Mr. Rogers never talked down to kids, you know, like, you know, we, we, we stereotype him as having this kind of, you know, can you say kind of, uh, condescending affect, but he never had that at all. You know, he talked to everyone that way and you know, kids, kids can sense that. And that worked just fine. You know, nobody was ever telling Mr. Rogers, you know, he would go through every script and make sure things were said in a way such that no kid could misunderstand it or get a scary idea or get a sad idea. You know, he wanted to make sure everything was just boiled down to the elements of what the child brain could do. But, but he was never like, you know, this needs to be said in a, a weird baby voice. Right. Or, you know? Yeah. If Elmo met Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers met Big Bird, and they seemed like they were peers. Oh, sure, I could, I could see that. Were, those two could be friends. I guess it's the, I guess it's back to like just reflexively shouting at kids because you, you feel like that's how they're going to understand you better. That that if you're not yelling, that you won't have a kid's attention. It would be nice to think that there's still room for someone who would whisper. And that concludes Mr. Rogers' Operas, entry 795.RO1502, certificate number 29242, in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, you are invariably living in a world where people are shouting at you every minute to get your attention. Social media is a classic example of people shouting and no one is whispering. Maybe not. Maybe the 
Maybe the trend of Mr. Rogers worship will lead to a revolution that'll get rid of all that kind of stuff. And it's, maybe it's, maybe we should have a little Mr. Rogers outro today. Like, we've had such a special time with our visit today, Futurelings. Futurelings. Do you know what we like about you? Special. That you're just being you. There's no one else quite like you. That's lovely. Go it's on. true. Keep going. That's all I got. I, I got to. No, no, I no. got to change my sweater now. <laughs> no, don't don't stop. <laughs> um, Futurelings, you don't have to go look at our Instagram and. Twitter accounts. In fact, please don't. <laughs> Unsubscribe. <laughs> um, Unsubscribe immediately from at Omnibus Project. We would love, love, love to get your actual terrestrial mail uh, and your email. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com and you can send us actual mail. I hear Ken over there opening a, an envelope. Mercy. Look at this big stack of mail, John. You can send us mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Oh, this is fantastic. Dana's mom is a retired postmaster, including several years at Elmore City, Oklahoma, the inspiration for Footloose. Does does every awful small town think it's the inspiration for Footloose, or is there something specific (laughs) about Elmore City? That's the thing. Everybody, everybody cut Footloose, Ken. (laughs) Everybody did. 20 jumbo postcards to collect and send. Oh, look, John, they're fighter planes. Oh, boy, collect and send them all. Show me. Are they all fighter planes? Uh, yes, but, uh, well, no, some of them are. Oh, that's like a little super cub that's or something. That's a piper cub, yeah. But um, here's Amelia Earhart's plane. Most of them, these seemed like they're beloved American airplanes. Beloved uh, Ameri- American airplanes, that's right in my wheelhouse. So you've got a whole collection. What else do we have here? Thank you very much. Here's Those a- are lovely. Oh, here's a poster about... Oh, this is great. Here's a poster with instructions of how to be a good postmaster. First, you need to greet. You could say something like, how are you today? Or, good afternoon. Nice to see you again. How may I help you? Then you... No, that's inquire. That's when you say, oh, yeah, how may I help you? But inquire is like a follow-up question. Like, would you like proof of delivery? Uh-huh. Or, have you seen our packaging products? Oh, they're upselling. Have you seen our packaging products? I say that all the time. Suge- here's here's my famous catchphrase in suggest one of our mailing tubes will be ideal for that poster <laughs> and then at the end you th- that's what she said at the end you thank this is the gist program greet inquire suggest and thank and at the end you could say something like i'm glad i could be of help or it's always a pleasure to serve you i wonder about this type of thing where a government somebody working for the government felt like postmasters needed a remedial education in how to interact with people. And I, I always wonder, like, whether that's whether that comes from the bottom up. It doesn't seem like it does. It seems like it comes from the top down. Look, they, we got a bunch of motivational hang-in-there type things for um, beleaguered postmasters. This one says perceptions, and it's got a, a postmaster just being harassed by an angry counter full of uh, customers. But instead of picking up a gun... He decides to deal with their problems one by one. It says, problems don't go away by themselves. Customers do. Oh, Is that saying that, that customers will stop using the post office? I think so. if the post, uh, what, But maybe that's what you want if you're, but, a, yeah, the ultimate if you're a tenured question government is, employee. <laughs> what, what advantage does a government employee have? Or what, what advantage is there to customer satisfaction? Have you ever wanted a poster that says, automation and barcoding represent our best defenses against both the frequency and the amount of future rate increases? I thought you were going to say communist influence. That's kind of what it sounds like, but do you know who, who, do you know who said that immortal uh, 
Mortal quote? Uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Anthony M. Frank, presumably some past postmaster general. Let, let me see. Let me see the, that one. Look at the hair. Oh, and she's got those wonderful, like, bezeled uh, glasses of the of the 1980s with the, the temples that go down to the bottom. Oh, the, Postmaster Frank has so many catchphrases. You know what he once said to me? Increasing product sales, revenue, and contribution is an alternative to budget cuts. This is a case of penny earned is a penny saved. That's not the expression, Anthony, but okay. <laughs> oh, here's another one. Yeah, what's this Apparently one? this show is now going to be two hours long because I have to read the I, yeah. Ch- Chairman Frank's Little Red Book here. A long time ago, I looked at the clock and I was like, this is going to be our longest episode. We've never had one go this long. And I'm so fine with it. We talked about Mr. Rogers. Is that true? How long is this? We're already at a, at a minute 27. Oh, man. I'm sorry, an hour 27. All employees want to do a good job. Keep with, going. With teamwork, participation, and communication, we can do a better job. All employees want to do a good job. But with teamwork, participation, and communication, we can do a better job. Do you believe for a second that there's any workplace in the world where all employees want to do a good job? No. Anthony M. Frank's uh, signature looks a little bit uh, shaky, too. Whoa, that's a big poster. And it's and it's endorsed by the Olympics. Yeah, the U.S. Postal Service was a proud sponsor of... I'm trying to tell which Olympics. It's got to be like the 88 Olympics this in Nagano or but something. But yeah, it's, this could be... Seoul or Barcelona, maybe? What do you, well, maybe it's maybe it's Barcelona or Atlanta. Could this be as late as 96? Yeah, they, they've got a different look there. 96, though. I don't know. Oh, here's a black and white poster. Oh, no, it's That's, not. It's, is this older? <gasps> oh, the save the best for last. Whoa. The Rush Busters Creed. Here are the... Uh, it's like the Weebelows Creed. Yes, here are the six points of the Rush Busters Creed. Rush Busters was apparently a Christmas, a holiday... A post office program designed to deal with the increased traffic in the post office. I feel like we have to December. go through the Rush Busters Creed. Will you? Will you? Will you read the creed? Okay, put your put your uh, right hand in the air okay, and repeat after me. I will show customers. I will show customers by my attitude and my actions. By my attitude and my actions that I am eager to help them. That I am eager to help them. I will keep in mind. I will keep in mind that they do not know as much. That they do not know as much about the postal service and its products. About the postal service and its products as I do. As I do. I, I, I sincerely believe that. Hence, I will have patience. Hence, I will hence, have patience. It's got a hence in it. I will always recommend. I will always recommend. That customers use the service. That customers use the service. That fits their needs best. That fits their needs best. And explain why it does if necessary. And explain why it does if necessary. Can you? I mean, that's trying to correct postal employees that aren't recommending the service. Are they upselling? Well, or they're just like, you know what would work for you? Send this, you know, through our... Put, Put your framed photograph in a tube. It seems like some, some of this is actually going to um, slow down the lines. Okay, keep keep going. I will handle or deliver mail. I will handle or deliver mail. If that's my job. If that's my job. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> I think that should be in all of these. <laughs> With the diligence and timeliness. With the diligence and timeliness. That befits a true rush buster. That befits a true rush buster. I will remind myself. I will remind myself. That I'm not the only person who's hassled during the holidays. That I am not the only person who is hassled during the holidays. So are my coworkers. So are my coworkers. That's why they brought the gun. No, 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 no. And my customers. And my customers. And finally, I will try to remember. I will try to remember. And act by. And act by. The Rush Busters Creed. The Rush Busters Creed. I thought that was implicit. Even after the rush is over. Even after. 
the rush is over. So these are words to live by. Wow, we can they really keep are. we can keep the rushbusters spirit of Christmas in our hearts all the year long. You know what? I I I have I've read the rush bust rushbusters creed, and I feel like a true rushbuster now. Oh, and he uh, he even sent us. Uh, oh, sorry, she. It was Dana, so it's not clear. Dana even sent us stamps. I think Dana's handwriting is. These are omnibus stamps with a picture of an old timey omnibus coach. Oh, how cool! Are those are those still good for postal? Uh, ser- yeah. Well, in a limited amount, these are one cent stamps. Stamps never uh, never aren't worth right stampage. This right? is still worth six cents worth of postage. That just doesn't go as far as perhaps it once did. Fantastic. So don't try to just put these on your new fighter plane postcards. If I if I will six cents not deliver a letter in the United States anymore. I don't think six cents will get you that far. Five cent stamp. That's what it used to be. Five cent stamp was a letter, right? Is that true? I feel, I mean, that's got to have been true at some point. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that it would be in your lifetime, though. Well, let me see when, when. A... Letters were five cents as late as January 6th, 1968. Oh, so. On that day, I went to six cents. That was right before I was born. So I was born in September of 68. So, so you were born into a six-cent stamp world. Uh, yeah. By the time you were old enough in the mid-70s to be thinking of sending letters to your grandparents, it would have been a dime. Ten-cent stamp. That's what I was thinking. Ten-cent stamp. Ten-cent stamp. I remember. And when did it stop being a ten-cent stamp? Because uh, slow climb throughout uh, late 75, 13. 13 cents in 75? Yeah. But all my grandparents were dead by the time by the time I was writing letters. So I was writing letters to... Who were you writing to then? Like the Richard Star, Nixon. The Star Wars fan club, Richard Nixon. <laughs> I just, Army. I just wanted Bantha Tracks magazine. I didn't want Nixon. I didn't want to tell Nixon anything. Futurelings, uh, you can look for other Futurelings. Look for the helpers at uh, Futurelings on Facebook, on Reddit, in, uh, in Discord and Twitch. Uh, just uh, anywhere Futurelings are sold. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. That is a that is your opportunity to get special omnibus bonus material, to listen to our addenda show, um, and to support the show in its in all of its wonders, to support our manufacture and distribution of the program. If you remember any of the Mr. Rogers operas, you can uh send us recordings of you singing them. That's right. I have very limited memory of uh, the songs. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you neighbors tomorrow for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>